you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Amos. The book of Amos. If you find the beginning of the New Testament and flip back ten books, you will be at the book of Amos. Those books are rather small though, some of them only one chapter, so uh, be careful when you're turning, it'll go fast. The book of Amos. Last week we looked at the book of Jonah and saw a prophet named Jonah. He was called to be a missionary, to take a message to a foreign nation that that nation might escape the coming judgment of God. And yet he refused his mission. He tried to get out of God's call in his life to be a missionary to a foreign nation. This morning we see the very opposite of Jonah. This morning as we look to the book of Amos, we see a man who was not trained to be a prophet. He was not someone who, who had that calling on their life like Jonah, who all of his days was a prophet. We find a man who was, who was trained and raised and lived as a shepherd. And yet one day God comes to him and declares that he is to be a prophet and he is to speak his word to his people. And yet people tend to reject him. They say, oh, they don't like the message that he says. And they say, so they say, you're just conspiring. You're conspiring with, with our enemies to, to give us a message that we don't want to hear, to, to undermine the authority of our government. And Amos, the response of Amos is, the Lord has spoken. How can I not prophesy? The, the lion of heaven has roared. How can I not convey that message to his people? Chapter 1 says that Amos received his calling around the same time as Jonah. That is, these two were contemporaries in, uh, in two different parts of Israel. While working the fields, the message comes to Amos that is to go to the people of Israel. Now remember at this time that the nation of Israel is split into two kingdoms. You remember that because of persistent sin, you had ten tribes that split off and formed their own nation, the nation of Israel to the north. And then there were two tribes that initially remained faithful to God. And they comprised the kingdom to the south, Judah. Amos was born in the city of Tekoa in Judah, and yet he was called, as it were, to be a missionary into northern Israel and to denounce their sinfulness and warn of the coming judgment. You see, though Israel, was, though Israel was prospering as a nation, though its borders were expanding, its sin was also deepening. Yes, Israel was prospering, but only a few were benefiting from it, while others were suffering poverty. All the while, the worship of Israel was becoming increasingly unacceptable to God because it was flowing from faithless hearts. And Amos begins his message, uh, frankly, quite cleverly. He begins by, by moving around the nation of Israel to all the other nations denouncing their sins. So it would be very much if someone were to denounce America for its sins, that they may perhaps start over in China and talk about human rights violations and then, and then move up to, to Russia and think about uh, in, in the past the, the, the mass extermination of peoples that took place there, much more so than the Jews. And then we might move down into Germany and, and talk about how the people who had the legacy of the Reformation, uh, the, the great reformers in the Word of God, how they gave all of that up, succumbing more to a concern for wealth and prosperity, and then moving into England and Canada, and then the sucker punch as we come in for the United States, completely taking people off guard. 
Likewise, Amos begins with all of the nations around. And we can hear, we can feel the nation of Israel saying, That's right, Amos, you give it to them. You tell them how it's going to be. You tell them what it's like to rebel against the one true and holy God. That's right, you call down judgment on them. That's right, Amos, keep preaching, keep preaching. And then Amos comes in and says, And to you, O Israel, to you, God's people, to you, for your sins you will not escape the judgment that is to come. After years of being patient, God's patience has run out. For hundreds of years, the people of Israel have been rebelling and turning away and turning away and turning away. And God has said, if you persist in this, this is what is to come. In fact, towards the end of the book of Amos, God lists all of these things that he has done, all of these, these small little judgments that he's put on them to try and get their intention, to get them to come back to him. And he says, and you did not return, and you did not return, and you did not return. And now basically God's message is, my patience has run out. The judgment that I said was coming is now going to come. This morning, as we seek to understand this message of Israel, as we see sinful Israel, we also want to let the word be a mirror to our own souls. And we have to ask ourselves, are we like Israel? Have we succumbed to the same kind of sins that Israel has as God's people? This morning, as the focus for our passage, we will be trying to summarize the entire book of Amos, but our, our, uh, our main text is going to be in Amos chapter 3. And that is what I want to read for you this morning. And I would encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word, Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of, e- out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, says the Lord God, an an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord God, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. 
Because of Israel's sin, judgment is coming. In the midst of this message of judgment, in the midst of this book of Amos, we see something not just about Israel, but something about Israel's God, our God, the same God that we worship this morning. And as we see these things, what we want to be challenged with is this. The main thing to take away from this morning is, are you living a life of authentic faith? In other words, are you playing the game? Are you saying, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I love God, but the reality of your life is clear, you do not. Are you living an authentic life of faith? And so, as we work through the book of Amos, particularly this passage, this is the the question that wants to be in our mind as we see three things. First, we see the judgment that God brings. We see the judgment that God brings. In chapter 3, Amos is explaining why the judgment is coming, why Israel is going to experience judgments from God. And and this should be a question on their minds. It would certainly be a question on their minds. After all, aren't they God's special covenant people? Aren't they the ones who received the law? Aren't they the ones who have the covenant promises? Why are they being judged? And what we see is that this is a judgment that is coming, and it's coming on His people. Through Amos, the Lord says, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God is reminding Israel who they are. They are the covenant people that he called into existence. Out of all the nations of the world, he says, I alone chose you to be my people. He created them in fulfillment to his promises to Abraham. He redeemed them out of Egypt in fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. They are the people that said they wanted to enter into a covenant relationship with God. They said, yes, God, you will be our God and we will be your people and we will do whatever you ask us to do. And here God says, because you are my people and you have broken the covenant that we have In the language of Hosea that we'll see next week, you have broken the marriage vows that we have taken. I will punish you for your sins. Now, to some of us, that that may sound odd. I know it definitely would have to Israel. They would have been thinking, wait a minute, but we're we're your covenant people. Why, Why are you punishing us? But God says it's the very opposite reality that's true. It's for the very reason that you are my covenant people, that you don't get a pass. You don't get an escape from judgment. You don't, you don't get just a wink, wink, and a nudge, nudge, and God says, carry on as if nothing happened. You have the privilege of being my people. You have my law. You have the promises. You have the land that I've given you. You have experienced grace and mercy like no other. And it's precisely because of these things that you bear a special obligation to live as God's people. You have a special obligation to bear God's name and God's reputation before the nations. This is what God is reminding them. This is what Amos is reminding them. In other words, what we have here is what Steve Thomas and I call Spider-Man theology. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen the movie, you read the comic books? Spider-Man started off as Peter Parker, this wimpy science geek guy. Nobody really cared anything about. He was kind of a pushover, joke in class. And then one day he is given phenomenal superhuman abilities. And at first he just wants to have fun. He says, man, look, look, at, all this, look at all this superness that I have now. 
I can spin webs and I can, you know, does whatever spider can. You know, that kind of stuff, you know what I'm saying? And he's all over the place having fun, but then very soon that world of fun comes crashing down around him. And the one lesson he learns, the one thing that becomes the kind of uh, banner over his life is with great power comes great responsibility. And that message is the very message that in large part God is getting out here. He's saying, with the great privilege that has come to you, the great power that is upon your life because you are my covenant people more than anybody else in the world, you have the privilege of knowing me. And with that privilege comes responsibility. Commentator J. Alec Motier says this, special privileges special obligations, special grace, special holiness, special revelation, special scrutiny, special love, special responsiveness. The church of God cannot ever escape the perils of its uniqueness. Motir is is echoing what God is saying through Amos, and that is, if you are my people, then you are held to a higher account than all the other nations of the world. If you have been invited to come and partake and see that I am good, then there is a a responsibility you have to do something with that privilege. Because the nation of Israel had been called to be God's covenant people and because they had broken their covenant with God, they will experience judgment. And that judgment, Amos says, is inevitable. Look at verse 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from its den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos is using these little proverb-like statements, these little riddles here to to convey his point. And much like at the beginning where he drew them in by by first denouncing the nations around them and then coming in, uh, as it were, with the kill shot to Israel, right in the heart saying, you have disobeyed God for the last time. So also now, Israel loves these kind of little proverb riddle things. So you can imagine they're all saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. What is he talking about? What does he mean? And then at the very end, he comes in and he says, look, This is inevitable. Judgment is coming. God's point in all this here is to say events have causes. Things just don't happen for a reason. If a lion is roaring, it's because he has found his prey. If a bird has been caught up in a snare and falls to the ground, it's because someone has set the trap for it. If the people in the city are afraid, it's because the warning of danger or attack has been sounded from the trumpets on the battlements of the city, the lookout towers. Likewise for Israel, God wants them to see that if disaster is coming upon them, it's because the Lord has brought it by His hand of judgment. If you're like Amos and you think along the lines of the Bible, then you don't believe in luck. You don't believe in chance. You don't believe in coincidence. You believe in providence. You believe that though He may use secondary means, some immediate cause, nevertheless, ultimately, God stands behind the event. It is happening according to His sovereign will and plan. An army may invade Israel. A famine may befall it. But ultimately, God stands behind these things, acting as the one bringing judgment for their sin. And so in the end, Amos says, The lion has roared. Who cannot fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? These are not empty threats, Amos is saying. The Lord has promised judgment for sins, and it will come. As we think about Israel's situation, 
we should immediately think of our own. Do we fall into the same kind of thinking that Israel had fallen into? Is God more or less our insurance policy? Do we mistakenly believe because we have placed our faith in Christ, because we are God's church, that somehow now we have a pass on life? That we can just live however we want? That, that there aren't going to be any real consequences because we're God's people. He's going to take care of us. As I joked a little bit with the youth on Friday night, do we think of God as just our cosmic sugar daddy that's going to give us whatever we want regardless of how we live? The answer is no. The answer is no. He did not do it for Israel and he will not do it for his church today. It's that kind of thinking that led Israel astray into callousness towards sin, a callousness towards sin that ultimately brought God's judgment upon them. We saw the judgment God brings. We now want to see the life God despises. The life God despises. He said judgment is coming, but, but why is the judgment coming? What are the sins that God is angry about in the life of Israel? God is not just content to leave things in generalities. He, point, he puts a finger on exactly what Israel has been doing. And basically he describes uh, the kind of life ultimately that he comes to despise, a life that is summarized by three sins in the book of Amos. Self-indulgence, social oppression, and corrupt religion. This is the kind of life Israel was leaving. This is the kind of life that he despised that, that brought his judgment. A life that is characterized by self-indulgence, social oppression, and corrupt religion. In verse 15 he says, I will strike the winter house along excuse me, with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. The summer house and the winter house is a reference to the amassing of property of Israel. Now, of course... It, if, if you've not read the law, if you've not read uh, you know, Deuteronomy and Numbers, that kind of thing, then you don't realize that's a sin in Israel. You don't gain new property as an Israelite. Why? Because that property is given to you by God as a trust to you and your family. So, so, so if I was the one going to the promised land for the first time under Joshua, taking the land uh, under his leadership, and God said, this is the plot that you have, guess what? That plot is mine and my family's in perpetuity. So it will be passed down to my son and to his son and to his son's sons. And so, but here we find people ignoring that. We find people thinking they found little legal loopholes and they're acquiring other people's lands, developing all kinds of summer homes and, and, and winter homes and all of these things, thinking they're clever, but in the end, God is not impressed. In chapter 4, God's rebuke comes with scathing, scathing words. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, men, I don't ever recommend you call a woman a cow, okay? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I just don't think there's any way it can ever be taken as a compliment. If you can come up with a way to call a woman a cow and it be a compliment, then you tell me. But I can't think of one. And I don't think in any culture it's a compliment to call a woman a cow. And I know in this right here, God does not mean it to be one. As he is calling these women of Israel cows of Bashan, he is saying that they are well-fed, they are fat, they are lazy, rather than lean and tough like a good cow ought to be. All of their sin is epitomized, and they are laying about in the bed or on the couch, calling out to their husbands, bring me more wine, bring me more wine. In fact, in chapter 6, God says, they drink so much wine, they drink it out of bowls. That's never a good sign. 
in all of this, God is trying to say that much of Israel has become self-indulgent. They are gluttonous, obeying their appetites for luxury and wealth more than God. And all of these appetites for all manner of things come at the expense of the poor and the needy. It is self-indulgence raising up through the means of social oppression. Verse 9 says, Proclaim the strongholds of Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumult within her and the oppressed in her midst. It gets a, an illusion here in Amos, but through the rest of the book, this idea is developed and becomes very clear that the self-indulgent wealth and luxury of Israel's elite came at the price of oppressing their countrymen. Their summer homes were built by people who weren't paid well. The ivory was collected by people who barely had enough to live on. And understand, God does not condemn their wealth. God never condemns wealth just for having wealth. He doesn't say it's a sin to be rich, but here... He very specifically condemns how this wealth was gained. It was gained through injustice toward the poor and fraudulent business practices. So while they had more than enough, people outside their doors in their cities were starving. D.A. Carson tells the story of one of his high school history teachers who had been furloughed because of an injury he had sustained toward the end of World War II. He was shipped back home to Canada. He had seen many of his buddies killed and many of them were still in action in Europe. And as this teacher was riding a bus in, a, in the Canadian city in which he lived, he heard an obviously wealthy and ostentatious woman in the seat in front of him uh, talking to her traveling companion. Her husband apparently worked in arms manufacturing and she confided to her seatmate, I hope this war doesn't end soon. We've never had it so good. You realize what that statement is saying? There are people being massacred in Europe. There are, there are people dying. There are people being maimed. And she's saying, I hope it doesn't end because we're making a lot of money because of this war. D.A. comments that, D.A. Carson comments that is the ugly face of complacency and that is the very picture that we're given here of the wealthy in Israel they have made their fortunes by oppressing the poor and the needy and they care nothing about them or the larger social problems of Israel they have their wealth they have their comfort they have their security and so they just laze about and yell bring me more wine and what made all of this even more despicable to God was the meaninglessness of their devotion to him Ultimately, these things feed into their corrupt religion. In verses 13 through 14, we read, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on that day I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. The, the, the altars of Bethel is the places where they would have worshipped. In fact, later on he goes and talks about numerous other places where worship would have happened before the tabernacle and the temple was set up. These were places of great victory in Israel's life, places where it, it demonstrated that they were faithful to God and God had blessed them. And now he says the worship there is worthless. It's worthless. 
In some ways, this is what had made the whole scene despicable in God's eyes. Here are people living in open sin and rebellion against God and His covenant law that are meant to govern their life. In the midst of this sin, they would go up and they would still offer the sacrifice. They would still try and go up and worship. They would still go up and try and practice their religion, thinking it would make it all better. They weren't worshiping the Lord as much as they were trying to pay Him off. Yeah, 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 go ahead and live, live however you want. It doesn't matter how you treat those people. Just go and offer the sacrifice. That's what God says to do, right? Sin and then offer the sacrifice, and that's okay. Atonement has been made so you can live however you want. But God says He will not be trifled with in that way. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. In other words, He has sworn by His own pure integrity, His own sinless character. There's nothing higher upon which God can swear by. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. God is saying, just as the fisherman drags the flopping fish out of the water with hook and line, so these hypocrites will be dragged out of the land in judgment for their sins. Their religion was corrupted in that they were more concerned with wealth than worship. Yes, they thought that, that their worship would, would make all their sins okay and that it didn't matter. But, but more than that, even when they gave their worship, their heart wasn't in it. They were, they were still more concerned about how they lived their lives. So in chapter 8, we read about the people in Israel and here's what they say. When will this new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath over that we may offer wheat for sale? You see what they're saying? When will the service be done so we can go and do more business? What if God were speaking today, what would he say to us? What would be, what goes through our minds? When will this service be over so I can eat lunch? When can I escape all of this banal talking with these Christians so I can go watch the game on television? Why waste an evening praying with God's people when I can be working or playing games? The result of all these things is God saying this, your worship is unacceptable to me. More than that, the worship is sinful because it doesn't flow from a believing heart. This is the problem that goes all the way back to Genesis 4. Some of you just looked at this a few weeks ago. It was the problem with Cain. had nothing to do with animal sacrifices versus vegetable. What the problem was, it was not offered in faith. It was Cain's heart that was corrupt and unbelieving and unloving towards God. And that's what canceled out the acceptability of his sacrifice. And the same is true for much of Israel. So in chapter 5, the Lord says, I hate I despise your feasts, feasts that he has commanded them to keep. He says, I despise them. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God says, you are coming and you're, and you're dancing and you're singing and you're clapping and you're offering these sacrifices. And he says, I'm not going to have any of it. Because you don't love me. You don't care about me. You're not, you're not actually offering these things up as, as worship to God. It's mechanical and cold-hearted. It's worthless. So yeah, you can keep offering them up, but they mean nothing to me. And in fact, my just righteous wrath against your sins is going to be flowing upon you like waters. 
part of the judgment that God says he will bring is a famine from his word. They had the law and they had prophets. And yet in chapter 8, God says, Israel shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. He says, basically, the worst judgment that I can bring upon my people is not kicking them out of the land. It's not bringing famine to them. It's not allowing invading armies to crush them. It's that I completely take my word away from them. That I do not speak to them anymore. It's a famine, not a food, but of the bread of life from God's own mouth. Pastor Mark Dever was once giving a lecture on the Puritans in England. And at one point, um, you know, over in England, they still have many churches that, that are standing from hundreds of years ago. And literally, they just keep polishing up the wood and, the, and everything's the same. And he was asking people that go to some of these historic churches, have you ever noticed the little ring, that little metal ring on the side of the pulpit? And some of them said, yeah, yeah, but we don't know what it's for. And he said, that is for an hourglass to be put. And if the people really loved their pastor, they would give them this little hourglass and if they really loved him, they would give him two turns of the hourglass, two hours worth of preaching. And he said one lady audibly went, <gasps> when would we have time for the worship? And in response to that, Mark Dever says this, <clears throat> at that moment, I could feel the whole Reformation crashing down around me. I let a couple of moments of silence pass in order to compose myself. And then I said to her, please understand that when these gifts were given, some of the people in the churches would have been old enough to remember the smell of the burning flesh of people who had died trying to translate God's word into the common languages like English. These people were hungry for God's word. Are we hungry for God's word? I'm not talking about two-hour sermons. That's not what I'm talking about. Because I can go up here and on and on and on and on for two hours and it doesn't matter. Because you can sit there the whole time and be thinking about something else. The question is, are you hungry for God's word? Would we notice if a famine of God's word came to our country, to our churches? Would we care if a famine of God's word came? And is our worship heartless and mechanical? Is it simply token offerings to God that we think will shield us from the consequences of sin? Or are we different from Israel? Are we different from them? So far, the message of Amos is a bleak one. The people have sinned again and again and again, trampling on God's patience. And now he says, the patience is done. I am coming like a roaring lion to devour you in judgment. And yet, even in judgment, God gives hope. And this is the final thing we want to see this morning. The hope that God gives. Look at verse 12. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Now, do you, first of all, do you understand what he's saying here? You, you get the analogy, the imagery that he's saying? Remember, this is coming from shepherds to you know, people that live in a farming community. He's saying, he's saying, do you remember when your sheep was attacked and carried off and you tried to go rescue it? You remember when it was ravaged as some predator's next meal and you went off thinking you might be able to fight it off like King David, but when you got there, it was too late? You remember how you didn't get the whole lamb back? You didn't get half the lamb back? All you got were two parts of a leg and a little bit of ear? That's a pretty gruesome picture. I think at that point, I would just leave the leftovers of the lamb. You know what I'm saying? 
And God says, when I come in judgment upon you, that's what it's going to be like. There's going to be very little left. Like a lion leaping onto a lamb, I am going to tear you to shreds. The only thing that's going to be left is a couple pieces of leg and maybe a bit of an ear. And yet, and yet, even in that judgment, that fearful picture of judgment, there is something left. God allows there to still be two legs and a bit of an ear. It may be only the smallest of portions, yet God's people will remain. Despite the terrible image of what is to come, there is hope because God is going to preserve some small part of Israel. He's going to keep a remnant. This idea of the remnant is picked up even more towards the, the end of the book in chapter 9 and in verse 8 there. God very specifically says the judgment will not be total but partial. He says, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. And here we see a theme that has been building since the time of Elijah in 1 Kings. This theme of God preserving a faithful remnant for his people. Well, it's important that we understand this. It's very important because it has a lot of implications for the church today. In the covenant structure of Israel, just because you were an Israelite did not mean you were a believer. Just because you were born into Israel, just because you were circumcised on the eighth day, just because you lived according to the law did not necessarily mean that we're going to see you in heaven or see them in heaven one day. Within covenant Israel, ethnic Israel, there was the true Israel, the true people of God who actually were born into the covenant and actually trusted and believed God. And as time went on, what we see is an increasing secularization of ethnic Israel. So that in large part, the people didn't care about God. They did not worship and love Him with their lives. They were not believers. And yet, even in the midst of all of that sin, the kind of sin that's so pervasive, God's going to bring judgment. God says, I keep a remnant for myself. Even though it may be even the smallest bit. So, so small that you may not even be able to see it. Nevertheless, there are people who still love me. There are people who in fact are believers. There are people that are grieved by the sin and continue to offer the sacrifices. And of course remember very famously when Elijah thinks he's, you know, he's the only believer left and he's all depressed and God says, what is the matter with you? I've got 7,000 prophets. I haven't even bowed the knee yet. And Elijah's like, oh, I, I didn't realize. And God says, don't worry. I've got my remnant. I've got my people. And this is exactly what he's getting at here. He goes on to say this, in that day, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David, that is, his, his house, his line of kingship. I will raise up the house of David that is falling, and I will, repair, I will repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as of days of old. Verse 12 of chapter 9. That they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord God who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord God. 
God promises that one day through this faithful remnant, he is going to restore the house of King David to its former glory. In fact, beyond its former glory into a new age of glory. Likewise, the kingship of Israel will not only be glorious, but there will be such blessing and fertility in the promised land that the one reaping the harvest is going to be the one overtaking the plowing of fields. In other words, it's almost, it's almost, like, a, a, it's almost like back to Eden. The, the crops are going to be springing up so fast and the, 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 the guys harvest them and the, the, he's bumping into the guy planting the seed down. And it's amazing the kind of prosperity that God's going to be given here. The question is, when are these prophecies going to be fulfilled? Have they already been fulfilled? Well, certainly part, the, uh, the, the part about the remnant coming back into the land in the midst of Israel coming out of the exile, we saw that being fulfilled. And so somewhat to then say, well, we saw the people coming back to the land, so maybe this, maybe this part about the blessing of the land shouldn't be taken too seriously. Maybe all of it was just fulfilled in the remnant, and it's not, you know, maybe Amos was exaggerating a little bit. Well, you might go that way, but I don't think it's the right way for one reason, and that is because the text says that when Israel gets back to the land... They'll never be uprooted from the land again. And we know, even after they came back from the exile, they did not hold on to the land. Even today, they don't have all of the land. Furthermore, there's no, there was no restoration of the Davidic kings either. The house of David was never raised up after the exile. There was no Davidic king that sat on the throne. So either Amos really goofed, which is highly unlikely, prophet of God, or this promise was not fulfilled in the time after the exile. Because it wasn't fulfilled after the exile, some want to see some kind of literal future fulfillment of these promises in the actual promised land. But there's no need to speculate on that, frankly, because the New, tells, the New Testament tells us very specifically how to understand these promises being fulfilled. It may be in language that would have appealed to ancient Israel, but it's, it's also a fulfillment that was unexpected. In fact, the Bible says very clearly these things are fulfilled in Christ. If you remember in Acts chapter 15, there is a question that as the gospel is going forward, not just among the Jews, but now among the Gentiles, and Gentiles are getting saved, the Jews are saying, what do we do with these Gentiles? How do we incorporate them? Do they have to become Jews? I mean, what is this about? And James hears, the Lord's half-brother hears what's going on, and he makes a pronouncement about how the Gentiles should be incorporated into the church. And he quotes from Amos 9. This very passage, and he says, they are coming in just as God predicted. They are coming in as full heirs of God's kingdom, fully part of the kingdom of this new people of God. And James insists that Jesus himself is the Davidic king that God raised up, that Jesus' reign fulfills this promise, and that the blessings to the Gentiles that are only hinted at here are being fulfilled in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. So in the end, what we see is that it is Christ who provides the hope in the midst of the coming judgment. And that's good because God's judgment is not finished. In fact, what Israel experienced was just a tiny hint of what the Bible says will be judgment on the entire world one day because of its sin. And yet, and yet there is hope in Christ. For in Christ, God has already judged sin. In Christ, God has already poured out his wrath against sin. On the cross, as Jesus hung there, a man who was perfectly righteous in every way, who did not deserve to be killed or hung on a cross as a common criminal, as the dregs of society. God nevertheless counted him as a sinner and poured out his full and righteous fury upon him, unleashing his judgment on sin on Christ. And the promises held out that if we will turn away from our sins, the kind of sins that maybe even Israel, are, Israel has here, perhaps many other sins. We will renounce that life of sin. 
and say, God, I know that's not what you want for me. I know it's not what I'm created for. I trust Christ. I trust Christ to be my Lord, to be my Savior. God says he will consider our sins judged on his son. But more than that, Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised back up to life. And as Lord of all things now, God says, I will, I will cause not just you to have forgiveness of sins, but I will cause the great exchange to happen. Because, because Jesus didn't sin. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And so while I count your sins to have been placed on him at the cross and judged, so now I consider his righteousness to be your righteousness. This is the hope that we have in Christ. He did come as the Davidic king, not just the king of the Jews, but the king above all kings and the Lord above all lords, ruling and reigning over all things. So when we turn to faith in Christ, we have hope for the judgment that is to come. And in him we find not just a savior, but a treasure that satisfies our souls. So this morning, this morning you have to ask yourself, will you be able to escape the coming judgment of God? Have you put your hope in Christ? If you have, does your life show it? Does your life show it? When the Holy One of Israel called you out of sin and death into his glorious light and he made you a part of his people, did transformation begin to take place? Did your life begin to reflect the holiness of God himself? As his adopted child, do you look like your heavenly father? It's a question we have to ask because, frankly, there are some people who think they are saved and they're not. They're not. And one of the ways that we know whether or not we're saved is that though we're not perfect, though we're not completely holy, we have a desire to pursue holiness. There is a desire to, to, to not sin and to emulate our Heavenly Father, to show our love for Him by how we live our lives. Is that how you live or is your life a spiritual sham? Are you just going through the motions of life with God when really He is not your Savior? He is not your treasure? As Amos says, the lion has roared and judgment is coming. Jesus came once to offer his life for sinners. And now he is coming again to judge the world. Are you going to be ready for that judgment that is to come? Are you right with God through Christ, the only source of our hope? Father, we are thankful for our time together. We are thankful for your word. Father, I pray that we will have heard the message of Amos, that, Father, we will have been able to see the kind of life that God despises, the kind of sin that reveals itself to be uncaring, unthinking, unfeeling towards you. Father, I pray that all those that would claim to be Christians here this morning would genuinely have faith in your Son for salvation and that, Father, their life would not be inauthentic but would be genuinely authentic both in having faith in Christ and in seeking to live as Christ lived not to earn salvation or to pay you back for it but to express the great love with which we have for the salvation you've given us by grace father i pray that if there are those that are here today that do not know you that father you would you would help this this trumpet blast of judgment that comes from amos to be the means by which they are woken up from their life of sin, that this would be the means by which you would draw them to yourself and help them see their only hope to be right with you, to escape the judgment that is coming, is to know and to be known by Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.
In response to the message this morning, I invite you to...